Thank you, Claire. Thank you. No, that's really kind of you. Um, although I have to give a bit of a health warning for today's message because this is... Let me put it this way. If you've never been to church before, the, chapter we're gonna, the passage we're going to read today is pretty intense. It's pretty heavy. It's all about the, the unmasking and the judgment and the destruction of the evil worldly powers that oppress the people of God, and it's not an easy read. So if you are new to the series, or actually even if you're just familiar with the series, I want to give a little bit of a health warning. It's, the, it's not that the whole book of Revelation is like this, or even that the whole Bible is like this, but it is quite full on, and you will probably feel that as we read it. But we're going to be looking in Revelation 17 and 18, and we're going to be looking at evil unmasked. That's the theme of today, evil unmasked, looking at Revelation 17. The best stories, in my experience, are the timeless ones. The best stories are the stories which, even though they're told in a very specific time and place, have elements of them that you can see yourself in, even if you read them thousands of years later. So you read Romeo and Juliet, and it speaks to you because you can relate to the sense of the frustration of being torn between your heart and your duty or your family and your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. You can, you can feel the drama even if you've never been to medieval Italy and you've never bitten your thumb at anybody to start a fight or anything like that. You can still connect, can't you? Because it's hundreds of years apart, but it's very real even despite the specifics. And Revelation's a great story like that. Revelation is a story that is set in a very specific time and place. It's set in the first century in the real world, And major players include Rome and Israel with its capital, Jerusalem, and West Asia, or what we now call Turkey. Major features of the world in Revelation. And that's what most of the book's about. But because it's a great story, the structure and shape of evil and justice and good and God and Jesus are still the same, even though the specifics of the book have changed a lot with where we are today. And so as you're reading the book of Revelation, you're feeling, well, at one level, this is very specifically tied in with their world, but at another level, it speaks to every generation, including mine. And that's what we're going to see as we do this today. So we, this is going to be the story or the vision of a prostitute riding a scarlet beast and then being thrown down and destroyed and some people going, ah, and some people going, yeah. That's the story we're going to read. Now, the scarlet beast in the first century world, the scarlet beast is Rome. And I think that the prostitute is Jerusalem, although that's more controversial. And the combination of those two things, you might think, well, I've never been to Rome or Jerusalem. How does this affect London? And the answer is that the structure of evil, the way it works, what it does, and how God deals with it is the same, even if the specifics of the drama in the first century have changed. So that's what we have to do with, as we read the Bible generally. We get into their world, and then we begin to realize, ah, now this is what it means for ours. And in this text, you're going to see evil unmasked. You're going to see what evil looks like behind the PR and the marketing and the spin, and what God does about it. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 17. This will be on your sheets, I'm sure. Revelation chapter 17 and beginning at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come. I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. I think that scarlet beast is Rome, and I think the woman sitting on it is Jerusalem. 
The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names haven't been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. If you've been to Rome, you may know that the seven hills in Rome are still a feature of the city today, and always have been. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other hasn't yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who haven't yet received royal power, but they're to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast." It's getting a little obscure, but I think those ten kings are probably the Caesars, right? The kings of Rome, known as the Caesars. Um, we still use the word czar today, and the, the Caesars there are probably the, the ten horns. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitutes seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. So what he's saying there is that the the beast which I think is Rome, is going to make war on and devour and burn to the ground the woman, who I think is Jerusalem. And that's actually exactly what happened in AD 70. If you know your history, then in AD 70, the Romans invaded Jerusalem, burnt the city, set fire to the temple, trashed the place, and to this day, there is no temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. You can go there today. There's a mosque there now, hundreds of years later. But that's because the Romans did this. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, unclean bird, unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living." Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I'm no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death, mourning, famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. 
And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls, the fruit for which your soul long has gone from you. And all your delicacies and splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, jewels and pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose traders on the sea, stood far off and cried... Out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. This is the word of God. This is the value of preaching through whole books of the Bible. Is You have to read bits that you wouldn't otherwise choose to spend time in. But what this passage is doing is it is unmasking evil for us. It is showing us what evil is really like behind the spin. And then it's showing us how it gets judged. See, evil always hides Evil always hides. It doesn't want to be seen for what it is, so it puts itself in disguise so that no one can really see what it is. That's why most crime takes place at night. Yeah? Because people don't want to be seen. They wouldn't do it if they could be seen, so they do it in secret. It's why people who are about to do something awful will often wear a mask or a hood or a balaclava. It's why domestic violence happens behind closed doors, because if it happened in public, people would intervene and stop it. So it happens secretly because evil doesn't want to be seen. Same is true of sexual abuse. It always happens in secret, shrouding, often with people, the shame intensifying the experience of emotional and physical trauma. Because evil doesn't want to be seen. It doesn't want to be exposed. That's why people disguise evil using euphemisms. So we use our language to disguise the reality of what's happened. So we don't kill unborn children. We support women's health. Right? It's the way of trying to make it seem, I don't want the reality to be obvious, I want it to be concealed in some way. Or We're not racist, we're nationalist, or provocative, or controversial, or presidential. Right? You try and disguise what's going on by dressing up the reality using language. It's why brothels and strip clubs have low CD lighting. So I'm told. It just, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
It's why pornography is digitally manipulated to conceal reality. Isn't it? Evil's always hiding. It's why the first thing Adam and Eve did when they sinned is to go and hide. That's what evil does. Evil hides. And so one of the tasks of Christian witness and reading and preaching of Christian scripture, and just being Christians in the world, actually, is the unmasking of evil. It's the exposure of evil. Now, you can't spend your whole life doing that. You'd get miserable if you did. That's not the only task, but it is sometimes the task of the Christian to unmask evil because it can feel very loving to waffle about it. Say, oh, well, I'm sure they had good reasons for this. And sometimes you say, no, no, no. I want you to see what has happened. I want you to see it in all of its grotesque grimness so that you can repent of it and recognize how bad it is. It's not always the loving thing to do to make people feel better. Sometimes you have to confront people with realities. And that's what Revelation 17 is doing. Revelation 18, we'll see in a moment, is doing something more. Revelation 17 is really unmasking evil. It's letting you see how grotesque the powers of evil actually are. They expose the beast and the harlot so that you can see evil unmasked. So Rome is not, as we might perhaps think, a grand city of togas and lovely temples and buildings. Rome is a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names with seven heads and ten horns. It's an arresting image meant to make you go, ugh. Right? Jerusalem is not, as the psalmist referred to it, the joy of the whole of... Jerusalem, in this context, in this period, is a prostitute arrayed in purple and scarlet who is holding a golden cup full of abominations and drunk with the blood of the saints. Right? This is fighting talk. It's very strong language. And for some of us, you could think, oh, that's anti-Semitic. Well, of course it isn't. It's being written by John's a Jewish guy, Jesus is a Jewish guy, Paul's Jewish, Matthew's Jewish. The whole Old Testament, right? Full of prophets who are Jewish, who love Israel, but confront Israel with the reality that in their day, Israel has become a harlot or a prostitute. That's, the prophets do that a lot in the Old Testament. And that's what's going on here. Now, John, we've got to be clear, John is not saying that the cities, Rome and Jerusalem, the bricks and mortar of the cities and every person in them are going to be killed. Because you've also got to remember that at this point in history, it's pretty likely that Jerusalem and Rome were the two biggest churches in the world. Right? Church in Rome and church in Jerusalem, huge churches. So they're not saying all people in those cities will die. What they're saying, they're using the imagery to describe the spiritual powers that are at work behind these cities, imperial Rome and unbelieving Israel and through Jerusalem at the time, in the way in which they're trying to attack the church and in the immorality and ungodliness that's taken root in the city. And they're using this, spirit, this image to describe the spiritual powers at work in those contexts. And they're the same spiritual powers that we will see in our day today, just with the cities of change. It's the equivalent, it's the unmasking of evil is the equivalent of walking into an orgy and turning all the lights on. So I don't want there to be any shifty corners here. I don't want anybody not to be seen. We're going to turn all the lights on so you can all see what you're doing. It's the equivalent of going up to a clansman and ripping that hood off. Don't you want to do that when you see footage of the clan doing things in any generation? You think, if only somebody could just go and pull off that hood. I'm sure if you were seen for who you are, you would know, there's no way you'd be standing there. So it's the equivalent of unmasking evil. It's the equivalent of filming footage of an injustice and posting it online. Saying, now everybody knows what actually happened. Look at you. This is who you are. You need to see it so you can repent and so everyone who's signed up to you can repent as well. That's what's going on in Revelation 17. It's the unmasking of evil. I told you it was heavy. But you don't unmask evil just for the sake of it. You don't unmask evil and then let people go back to their drunkenness, their orgies, injustice, violence, whatever it is. 
The purpose of ensuring evil is unmasked is to ensure that evil is judged. Right? That's why you're doing it, because you want evil to face judgment. And actually, there are a few things more outrageous in the world, aren't there, than when evil gets unmasked, people know who did it and what they did, and they get away with it anyway. That's almost worse than not knowing who did it. And we have a word for that. We call it impunity. The idea that somebody could be exposed as having done something evil and everyone knows that they have and they still don't face consequences. It's grotesque. It offends us. Even from a very, very young age, we have wired into us. That is unjust. It is wrong. The lack of punishment and justice upon evildoers. I was about 12 when the beating of Rodney King took place. I didn't really understand the context of it. I didn't know know anything. I just remember seeing black and white footage on the TV. Some of you are too young to remember it. Many of you will remember it. The beating up of this guy, just lying, just policemen, five or six of them piling into him. And then, of course, the fact that it was videoed, but the first time around, at least, there were no, it was seeing no consequences on the people who'd done it. I remember thinking, that's worse than something happened, having happened in secret, because people know what's happened, and they still haven't done anything. And tragically, that kind of thing has happened many times in recent years. The one that got me was seeing Eric Garner, if some of you would know that, in New York. But again, you know, you see the policeman, you see him being chokehold, you see him being pushed to the ground, you hear him saying, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and then he dies. And the the review takes place, and the people who did it get away. And you think, there is something that's worse about that in some ways than not knowing what happened. Because evil is unmasked in order that it might be judged, and it simply is not right for evil to be unmasked, and then not judged. And there are all kinds of examples oligarchs, presidents, dictators, people who everyone knows what they've done, and we're going to let them get away with it because they're too powerful. But God doesn't just unmask evil. God judges evil. God judges evil, and chapter 17, he exposes it, and chapter 18, he judges it. And that's actually a source of huge encouragement and hope for those of us who are living in a world where injustice doesn't always get punished. Because, you see, if you think that injustice, if people get away with it, it can be very difficult not to become bitter and twisted. Whereas actually when you realize ultimately no one gets away with it, they're just getting away with it now. right? The day is coming when there will be a reckoning, there will be a judgment. Praise God for that day. But in the meantime, sometimes it looks like they got away with it. But they haven't. And vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So you've got to live with that tension. And God says actually evil doesn't just get unmasked, it gets judged. And that's the shout from heaven, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, chapter 18 and verse 2. That's the shout from heaven. Babylon, with all of its evil, is going down like a millstone into the sea. And that cry of fallen then becomes the hallelujah chorus in chapter 19, which is a very famous piece of music now. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. It sounds a bit better than that when you hear it done nicely, but... Maybe, I don't know, maybe not that much better, but um, it's a sort of dramatic celebration of the throwing down. Do you know what that's, that's about? The Hallelujah Chorus is the celebration of the throwing down of Babylon. The irony is, of course, that in Babylon, in the text we've just read, the rich people, the prosperous people, the merchants, the ones who trade everything, are looking at Babylon and going, alas, alas. Whereas today, rich people and prosperous people who make money out of Babylon are attending nice, pristine, middle-class churches in Mid-Sussex, where I come from, and singing songs, singing the Hallelujah Chorus at Christmas. I think there's an irony there, because actually in the original setting, the people who are now celebrating would have been mourning. Something to think about. And in the immediate context, the way it comes about is that the beast turns on the harlot and destroys her with fire. As I say, Rome turning on Jerusalem. Evil often does that. It turns in on itself. And... 
You know, it happens in the movies. The, the guys who look like they're in cahoots, and in the end, they betray one another, because evil often does. But John wants us to see that's not just a result of natural forces playing out. That's a result of the judgment of God. Because it says, chapter 17 and verse 16, the beast will hate the prostitute. They'll make her desolate and naked. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. So this is an act of God's judgment. It's not just a historical accident. 18 and verse 5, God has remembered her iniquities. 18 verse 8, mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This is an act of divine judgment on Babylon. And passages like this serve as an encouragement and a warning to the church. It's an encouragement because it shows us that all evil will ultimately be judged and no one gets away with it. Praise God. It is a warning because it shows us that all evil will ultimately be judged and no one gets away with it. See, so it's an encouragement in the sense of chapter 18 and verse 20, we have a call to celebrate. This is not a song we often sing in this church, but according to Revelation, it's one we can. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Woo! It's supposed to be calling people to praise and sing for joy because God has thrown down the people who've been oppressing her. So it's a source of encouragement, but it's also a source of warning. Chapter 18 and verse 4. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and you share in her plagues. You see, so the throwing down of Babylon is a source for cheering and whooping and singing, but also a source for warning. Because a lot of people misunderstand biblical warnings. They see things like this around Jerusalem or whatever, and they think it's about the Jews. Whereas actually, it's, in this, it's not really about the Jews at all. It's about people who think they're safe to do whatever they want, no matter how sinful, because God won't get them. That's the warning. That, the warning should apply in many ways to those of us who are saying, yeah, God won't care. I'll do it. God will never get me. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever. I, I can sin in any way I want. White-collar fraud, gossip, domestic violence, hateful speech, sexual sin, luxury makes a lot of appearances. I can do all those things. No one cares. God won't get me. That's the people who should feel the warning. Come out of Babylon, my people. Otherwise, you're going to start doing the same sin she has, and you're going to face the same consequences she does. It's a warning as well as an encouragement. And that's a challenge for us. It's not something we particularly think about a lot. Now, I want to reassure you, and to this degree, if you repent, you have nothing to worry about, right? That's got to be really clear. If you, I don't want the this, this soft conscience of a Christian to go, oh, have I done that yet? If you are a repentant person, you come into the family of God in a context like this, and you say, Lord, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against, uh, sin against me. Lord, I want, to, I want to follow you. I'm united with Christ. I thank you. you. You are not a person who has to be concerned. Repentant people stand under the blood of Jesus and there is a crimson stream that washes white as snow and it takes your sins away and out to sea. That's glorious grace. And you don't have to worry for a moment if you are a repentant believer. But if you are not, you say, actually, I'm taking part in Babylon's sins. I'm doing this, this, and this, and I don't really care. And I'm not really that worried about the fact that I am. And no, I don't think I'm going to stop doing it. And you do have something to worry about. Jesus says it himself. He says, if you don't repent, you're going to perish as well. So there is a warning here for those of us who might think we're safe and can therefore fool around with God in response. Come out of her, my people. Otherwise, you'll share in her plagues as well. Evil is unmasked, but it's unmasked that it might be judged. But praise God, there is good news. I know you want it by now, but there is good news, which is not that evil is not only judged, but evil ultimately is removed. 
right? There is evil that is unmasked, that it might be judged, but it's judged that it might be removed, thrown down, right? Chapter 18, verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a giant millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down and be found no more, right? The structures and powers of evil are destined to be destroyed forever, never to come back, and you could go looking for them and you wouldn't find them. And that's what comes about in the no more, no more, no more, no more. You may have noticed as we read it. The no more, there'll be none of this, none of this, none of this. It'll all be gone. You get the same in chapter 21. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, and there was no more sea, no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying, no more death. The whole thing had gone. All the old order had passed away. Evil is unmasked to be judged, but it's then judged to be removed. And that is so crucial when it comes to our understanding of divine judgment. And particularly, in my experience, the doctrine of hell, which can really freak people out. Right? My favorite summary of this principle that evil is judged in order to be removed, my favorite summary comes from my friend, uh, one of my friends, uh, Josh Butler, in one of his books, where he uses this wonderful line. He says, God's agenda is to get the hell out of earth. Right? Have a look at this picture. This is what he means by it. God's agenda is to get the hell out of earth. Josh says, there is a problem because what often we think is happening is that we live on the earth and at the end there will be a, a hell and a heaven and people file into one or the other. Now there is some truth to that, but that's the picture many of us operate with. And Josh says, that is not the most helpful way of thinking about these realities because we know from the word of God, we know from James chapter 3 and other places, hell is at work in the earth now. It's not just a future thing that will one day, oh, goodness me, there's this awful thing going on. No, no, no. The work of the power of hell in and through the devil and the world and the flesh, that's at work now. And it's in the earth and it's tainting and destroying God's good creation. And heaven is at work in the earth now. And that's the purpose of Jesus' entire ministry. Hey, guys, repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' purpose in coming is to bring heaven to earth to drive out hell so that it wouldn't be left anymore and there would only be heaven left on the earth. That's the, that's the focus of Christian hope. And that is true, by the way, of the world. That's why, Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first one passed, and there was no longer any sea, death, hell, all the rest, all gone. It had been thrown into the lake of fire. Glory to God. That's true of the world. But it's also true of me. It's true of you. I'm born in Adam. I'm, a, I'm born as a sinful person. I've got the power of hell at work in my own life, right? And I'm born into this world. I've got the desire to run my own show, be my own king. I've got that in me. And God's purpose in saving me is not just to forgive me for doing that, but to bring the cleansing, purifying, beautifying power of heaven into my life so that hell might be thrown out. And one day I'm going to look like this. The hell that was me will have been gone completely and I will be nothing but heavenly in that sense as I inherit a new heavens and a new earth with Jesus. God's agenda is to get the hell out of me, as well as to get the hell out of the world he's made and every civilization and every city that has been built by man in the meantime. Crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways from soul to soul, that sin may cease and all be prayer and praise. And that's where the story's going. That's the hope of the Christian, that actually God does not simply unmask evil and get you to go, ugh, or even judge evil and get you to realize I might need to be encouraged or warned here. But also that God is going to remove it, abolish it, drive it out forever. And that that's his intention not just for the individual but for everything that he has ever made. And a disciple is someone who lives now 
in anticipation of that reality. Right? So we're the people who go, that's where the story's going. That's what God thinks about evil. That's what he's going to do. So I'm going to anticipate that reality in my daily life. And I'm going to do that in twin ways. I'm going to do it by acknowledging where I have been complicit with Babylon in evil. And I'm going to repent and ask for forgiveness. But at the same time, I'm going to acknowledge that it isn't all just me. It's actually the power of the devil. And I'm going to ask God and to throw it out, to destroy it forever, to rescue us from it and to celebrate that one day he will. So I have this kind of strange tension mapping out in my relationship to evil, don't I? I have to acknowledge that to some degree evil is outside me and say, God, destroy it, please, forever. And also that evil is in some ways at work in and through me and to say, Lord, where I have been a partner with Babylon, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And you do both of those things. And actually, we do both of those things on a daily basis. It's called the Lord's Prayer. That's what the Lord's Prayer is, isn't it? It's glorious. Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. Lord, bring the will that is currently perfectly expressed to heaven to earth so that there's no room for any rebellion against you. And provide everything we need in the meantime. Lord, forgive us our sins because I have been a partner with Babylon myself at times and I'm sorry. And I want to forgive other people in that spirit who've done those things to me because I don't want unforgiveness to get my heart either. And I pray you wouldn't lead me into any context where I could be tempted to partner with Babylon, but I also pray that you would deliver us that is the whole world from evil, as one day you will, because yours ultimately is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. That's the Lord's Prayer. And I wonder if we could stand together and pray it with that in mind. To pray it, actually, as a... we just get to our feet now, and we'll put it up on the screen. To pray it, mindful of the fall of Babylon. It's probably not something most of us have done before, but to think through, okay, Lord, I, part of this is in me, and I want that... I'm, I'm sorry. But part of this is in the world, and I'm praying you rescue me from it. And then what will happen is, as we're concluding our prayer, the band will begin to lead us in a song that puts that prayer to music, which is a beautiful way of crystallizing it and expressing it again for us. So let's, the words will appear up here, and then let's pray the Lord's Prayer with this in mind. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's praise God.